Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. Hello, everyone. This episode is brought to you by the 51 fantastic supporters over at Patreon. For those that don't know, Patreon is a platform that connects online creators like me to viewers and listeners like you in order to get some kind of financial support in exchange for some sort of bonus or benefit or prize. If you become a patron of the History of Persia podcast now, you get access to things like ad-free listening, bonus episodes, and occasional excerpts of what I'm working on outside of the podcast, all dependent on what tier of the payment system you sign up with. In my last big update about Patreon, I said I was almost at the 50 patron mark, and we did in fact make it. Several people signed up and pushed me right over the 50 mark, so now I'm sitting around 51 patrons. 
If supporting the show and getting access to things like bonus episodes sounds appealing to you, head over to patreon.com slash historyofpersia and see how you can support the show today. I just put up an episode on Wedja Hareznet, the Egyptian advisor to Cambyses. So please, go, check it out, and I hope to see you there. Welcome to the History of Persia. I'm Trevor Cully, and this is episode 30, Persia City. And an extra hello to everyone who gets ad-free listening through Patreon. Listeners on the regular feed just heard a miniature ad about the Patreon bonuses, and I want to take this time to do two things. One, give a big shout-out to Peter Rojas, who was the phenomenal 50th patron of the podcast, and to announce a bit of a giveaway. Back when I first launched the Patreon... I offered a sticker to whoever signed up in the first month. And if you sign up at the $10 mark, that actually is part of the benefit package by default. But I wanted to offer the stickers again. This time, there's no Patreon commitment required. You just have to reach out to me on any platform and tell me that you're interested in putting your name in the drawing. I've got 10 stickers, so I'll pull 10 names out of the hat, and those will be the 10 that get the prize. And I just want to make it clear, this is open to everyone. I've got plenty of international postage laying around from last time, and it's not like I send letters very often. So please, everyone, feel free to submit your name for that. Of course, I do want to draw people's attention to Patreon, so if a non-patron goes to Patreon and messages me there, I'll enter their name twice. Otherwise, you can contact me by commenting or using the contact page on the website, historyofpersiapodcast.com, over email, historyofpersiapodcast at gmail.com, or on social media. You could go through the Discord link on the website. You could go through Twitter, where I'm at History of Persia, or you could go through Facebook and Instagram, where I'm History of Persia Podcast. All of those will work. I'll accept any of them as a form of contact for the drawing, and I hope to hear from you all soon. And of course, I want to remind everyone that you can always send questions and comments and feedback that way as well. So, without further ado, let's get on to the episode. Last time, we completed the long-running tour of the whole Persian Empire. Taking things to a very macro level, I went through each satrapy, great satrapy, and many of the minor sub-satrapies to flesh out all of the various components of Persia at its height. Today, we're shifting to a more micro level. Rather than touring the whole empire under Darius the Great, I want to focus on just two important sites, his new palaces in Susa and his new capital at Persepolis. Of course, the ancient Elamite city of Susa itself also became a new capital. That's just kind of what happened when the King of Kings decided to build a house in your neighborhood. But Susa was already a city, it just needed some revitalization and a home for the king. Persepolis basically had to be constructed from the ground up. According to Jean Garthwaite in his survey of Iranian history, the Palace of Susa probably served as the model or trial run for the much larger project at Persepolis. Their construction is uncannily similar, though at least some of it must have been concurrent with either project. Most of this episode will probably be a tour of the new city in Parsa, but I want to start with the palace in Susa, not only because it was built first, but because, for once, Darius does not leave us wanting for detail. Like any good palace in this period, Darius's new home in Susa was built on top of a hill, 
not the highest in Susa, but still rising well above the rest of the surroundings. The top of the hill was leveled off to form a massive terrace, spanning 30 acres or about 12 hectares. About half of that space was covered by the palace building itself, including open courtyards. But the flattened platform that remained provided ample uncovered outdoor space surrounding the facilities. Naturally, carving out significant amounts of a hill makes the earth itself unstable in some places, and so a massive retaining wall was built all around the terrace, 15 meters or 50 feet high at its highest points. Now, when I say that Darius doesn't leave us wanting for detail, I mean he left us an inscription telling us exactly how it was built, and now that you've been on the tour of the Empire, you know where most of the places he mentions are. Using Roland G. Kent's translation on Avesta.org, the so-called DSF inscription reads, Darius the king says, Ahura Mazda, the greatest of the gods, he created me. He made me king. He bestowed upon me this kingdom, great, possessed of good horses and possessed of good men. By the favor of Ahura Mazda, my father Histaspes, and Arsimes, my grandfather, these both were living when Ahura Mazda made me king in this earth. To Ahura Mazda, thus was the desire. He chose me as his man in all the earth. He made me king in all the earth. I worshipped Ahura Mazda, and Ahura Mazda bore me aid. What was by me commanded to do, that he made successful for me. What I did... I did all by the favor of Ahura Mazda. This palace which I built at Susa, from afar its ornamentation was brought, downward the earth was dug, until I reached the rock in the earth. When the excavation had been made, the rubble was packed down, some forty cubits in depth, another part twenty cubits in depth. On that rubble, the palace was constructed. And that the earth was dug downward, and that the rubble was packed down, and that the sun-dried brick was molded, the Babylonian people did these tasks. The cedar timber, from a mountain called Lebanon, from there it was brought. The Assyrian people brought it to Babylon. From Babylon, the Carians and Ionians brought it to Susa. The Yaka timber was brought from Gandhara and from Carmania. The gold was brought from Sardis and Bactria, and here was it wrought. The precious stone, lapis lazuli and carnelian, which was wrought here, that was brought from Sogdiana. The precious stone, turquoise, that was brought from Chorasmia and was wrought here. The silver and the ebony were brought from Egypt. The ornamentation which the wall was adorned with, the ivory which was wrought here was brought from Cush and Sind and Ericosia. The stone columns which were here wrought, from a village named Abiradu in Alam, were brought from there. The stonecutters who wrought the stone, those were Ionians and Sardians. The goldsmiths who wrought the gold, those were Medes and Egyptians. The men who wrought the wood, those were Sardians and Egyptians. The men who wrought the baked brick, those were Babylonians. The men who adorned the wall, those were Medes and Egyptians. Thus Darius the king says, At Susa, a very excellent work was ordered. A very excellent work was brought to completion. May Ahura Mazda protect me, and Histaspes my father, and my country. And just to be clear, end quote. 
So really, I don't think I need to add a whole lot more about how the palace was constructed and what materials were used. Darius just left that for us. Apparently, it was carved repeatedly all over the palace, too, because it was pieced together over multiple fragmented copies found all over the site. They dug down, flattened out the terrace on the bedrock, brought in the best craftsmen and materials from around the kingdom, and constructed a truly magnificent palace for Darius. Otherwise, there are only a few really interesting tidbits kind of buried in there. For instance, the presence of ivory as a common import from Ericosia is kind of interesting. Apparently, elephants are starting to make their move west into the Iranian world, even though we don't see much military application for them until after the Macedonian conquests, about two centuries from now. The presence of Ionian workmen has always intrigued archaeologists who have tended to have a very Eurocentric or Greek-centric outlook on Persian history, but ultimately we don't actually see a ton of Greek influence on the artwork and architecture in or around Iran. It mostly just seems that Ionian workmen came and built in the style that they were directed to. Other examples include this show's first good example of a real Achaemenid preamble with all of those invocations of Ahura Mazda and prayers for the country and the king. That becomes very typical of all inscriptions moving forward. Though we do get the odd reference to Darius's grandfather Arsimis, who is apparently still alive and kicking, even though we almost never hear about him in any other context. He doesn't even get mentioned again at the end of the inscription, when Darius asks for Ahura Mazda's protection for him, his father, and their country, but Grandpa Arsimis gets left out. Despite the very detailed account of construction, it's actually very hard to tell which rooms in the palace were used for what, given that we only have their foundations and a few freestanding columns in many places. But we do have a pretty good picture of the palace in general. In good Achaemenid fashion, Darius's first attempt at building a palace in Iran leaned heavily on Mesopotamian models. The palace under construction in Susa was built in a very similar style to the one that was also being constructed in Babylon at that time. So let's tour a palace. A visitor to the royal residence would have started their approach in a small covered pavilion or walkway called the Propylium by archaeologists for similar gatehouses in ancient Greek architecture. The Susa Propylium was actually on an adjacent hilltop next to the main palace. From there, you would have to approach the actual palace from a long causeway that led up to a relatively small gatehouse set aside from the rest of the complex, kind of a free-floating building at the edge of the open terrace. Known as the Darius Gate, you would pass through the central hall, flanked by two ancillary rooms as you moved westward toward the actual palace complex. Atop the gatehouse, there was a rooftop terrace connected by stairs in the corners, and the gatehouse was actually a feature that was constructed later, and may not have been finished until the reign of Xerxes rather than Darius himself. Beyond the Darius gate was an expanse of open terrace that would have allowed you to take in the heavily decorated edifice of the residential palace as well as a large statue of Darius himself. The statue is now only known from literary sources. Chances are it was made from some kind of metal like bronze, and it was melted down long ago. From there, you would enter into the palace and head to a courtyard called the Third Court, or the Military Court by archaeologists. This was the largest of a series of open spaces within the palace itself. 
On one side of the third court, there were a series of freestanding decorative columns. Each of these columns, like all of the others in Middle Achaemenid architecture, was done in the Achaemenid style. Much like Greek architecture had some of the old standbys in the Doric or Ionic columns, the Persians perfected a local version of the classical column. In this case, the Achaemenid column was a smooth stone pillar seated on a plain round plinth, but with two stone bull's heads, often with front hooves adjoined to the top. This design was probably perfected at Susa, and then spread out to other royal sites. Continuing up the center of the palace, you would pass through a short hall or long doorway, depending on how you want to think of it. That would lead you to a slightly smaller open courtyard, called the Second Court. The precise use, if it even had one, for this middle court is unknown, as it's mostly surrounded by miscellaneous smaller rooms. Beyond there, another large doorway brings you to the first court. Slightly smaller than its predecessors, the first court was the deepest courtyard in the palace. This was potentially the most exclusive and intimate portion as well. The first court, sometimes called the western court, was connected directly to a large covered section of the palace by a door on the southern wall. This is variously identified as a throne room or the king's apartments. This deepest part of the building was where the king, his household, and his harem would reside while in Susa. The throne room may be a misunderstanding, or maybe there was a small audience chamber for formal but small gatherings in the king's private section of the palace. The royal apartments also included a fourth and private small courtyard, with a door that led out onto their own private section of terrace. There were a series of storerooms for supplies on the southern wall of the palace directly connected to the royal apartments. These storerooms would naturally be the part of the palace guests were least likely to see. In fact, it seems probable that the kings never took much interest in them either once they were complete. It seems fitting, and probably intentional, that these are on the far side of the palace from the giant audience hall that was the public-facing portion of the structure. That was the Apadana, a hippostyle audience hall. Hippostyle is another Greek borrowing by archaeologists that refers to a hall that is dominated by columns, evenly spaced throughout the whole chamber. The north, east, and western sides of the square audience chamber were all exterior walls that led out to open portico terraces, also covered in columns, and each had large doors that would lead into the meeting hall. The southern wall of the Apadana contained an entrance that led back into the palace. This Apadana must have been where Darius would hold court and host his nobles and entourage in a more public-facing or ceremonial circumstance, while the rest of the palace must have been reserved for closer confidants, long-term guests, and smaller events. Unfortunately, if you go to Susa today, even though it's one of the best-preserved Achaemenid palaces in terms of artwork and inscriptions, there's just not much left. Just within the 20th century, it sustained serious damage. Some was ultimately necessary to continue excavating. Sometimes floors or brick have to be removed or damaged in order to learn more about a site. It's an unfortunate drawback to early archaeology, even after archaeologists started to become more scientific than their early 19th century counterparts. But other sections, especially in the Apadana, were badly damaged by the Iran-Iraq War in the 1980s. It left the field east of the palace strewn with pieces of the Apadana and its columns. 
On top of that, the columns were so badly damaged that they cannot be rebuilt and restored for display like those famously seen at Persepolis. Fortunately, there is now a museum dedicated to the Achaemenid Palace, and more work is being done to preserve the remains of the building at Susa, but some of it is just too late. But, what if Darius wasn't in residence at Susa when we came there on our tour? Well, then he must have been at one of his other palaces. Like I said last time, he had plenty. There was one in Babylon, another in Ecbatana, probably another somewhere in Media, and still another built by Cyrus at Pasargadai, and of course he had access to palaces in the satrapal capitals all over the empire. But Darius's greatest construction project was much more complex than that. Rather than just another palace in Susa, Darius built up a whole new palace complex and the supporting infrastructure around it. Persepolis is the first point where we really cannot avoid the next generation of Persian kingship. We've had to bring up Xerxes a few times now for a variety of things, but most of that could have been glossed over if I wanted to, or was only for minor features like finishing the Darius Gate. But in Persepolis, I have to point out large swaths of a topic that are the product of Xerxes and his descendants. Much like Pasargadai stretching out from Cyrus breaking ground, continuing through his sons and finishing with Darius, Persepolis will face a similar scenario. The kings of Persia are once again starting with a blank slate, one that I routinely wish that I knew more languages. Even right in the middle of the US, I run into Spanish speakers all the time, and my social media always has a little Persian, Arabic, some Dutch and German. Rosetta Stone does help. It's the most trusted language learning program after all. It's also conveniently available on desktop or on the go as an app and has some really cool features that truly immerse you in the language you're learning. Just the first steps, like learning a new alphabet and some simple phrases, helped open new doors, and Rosetta Stone is a great choice as the trusted expert in this for 30 years and millions of users with 25 languages available to learn. They focus on fast language acquisition, without English translations to help you learn, speak, listen, and think in your new language while building long-term retention. Their true accent speech recognition also gives feedback on pronunciation, which can be really important for languages like Persian, where how you say something is very important. And on top of being available for desktop and mobile, you have the option to download lessons and take them offline. This is also all available at a steal. You can get lifetime membership, all 25 languages, for 50% off. Don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. That Darius couldn't possibly complete in his own lifetime and thus some major features of the modern ruins are absent at this point in our narrative. The next two generations of great kings will leave impressive marks on Persepolis, most notably the absolutely massive palace of Xerxes on the southern side of the royal complex and the famous Hall of 100 Columns. I'll continue to revisit Persepolis as it develops, 
but it won't be for another 160 years of narrative history before I can give a full tour of the modern ruins that would be in sync with the podcast. For now, we're just seeing the beginning of the capital city in Parsa. Literally just a city called Parsa by the Persians. Some archaeologists have previously speculated that Cyrus the Great chose the site for a capital, but it took until Darius to break ground. Practically, this is just wild speculation. There's no written record and no reason to suspect that Cyrus wanted to build both Persepolis and Pasargadae. In reality, the city of Parsa starts with Darius. The Persepolis complex, situated between the Pulvar and Kor rivers, to the northeast of modern Shiraz, was built in a very similar fashion to the palace at Susa. The first step was to flatten and expand a hilltop. The debris produced by digging down to bedrock was used to fill in around the natural hill and packed into retaining walls to create another huge terrace. At different points, the walls vary from 13 to 41 feet high, about 4 to 12 meters. The terrace here was built larger than Susa, about 33 acres or 13 and a half hectares. The terrace doesn't seem to have been expanded at all, so the 33-acre platform must have been remarkably empty in Darius's day. The first phase of building saw construction on the eastern edge of the complex, the southeastern corner, and the southwest side. If we were to visit Persepolis in the early 5th century BCE, we would have been able to enter through a grand staircase, though it was only partially finished. 111 steps in two flights bring you up from the surrounding plain and hillside to a huge terrace. The stairs were flanked by tall stone walls of carved stone block. Like most of the complex, the stairs and the walls here were made from grey limestone. If we came back in another decade, we'd proceed through the grandiose entryway of the Gate of All Nations. But under Darius, only the foundations of the gatehouse and its two parallel halls would have been present. So instead, we have to go straight ahead and find ourselves on the northern edge of another raised terrace within the main, large 30-acre terrace. A flight of steps led up to that platform, and a large audience hall. This was another Apadana, in the same style as the audience hall at Susa, though it was actually just a little bit smaller. Like Susa, this was a large hippostyle hall, filled with evenly spaced columns holding up the ceiling. But unlike Susa, this audience hall was not connected to another structure, and the outside porticos were not yet complete. Instead, we have a freestanding throne room in the center of Persepolis. On each side, another hippostyle porch was under construction that would lead into the Apadana through large doors. Like Susa, the columns were in the Achaemenid style with dual bull's heads at the top of the capitals. Many of them are still standing or have at least been reconstructed today, 2300 years after the walls and ceilings burned and collapsed. The stairs leading down to the main terrace from the Apadana were home to some of the most important pieces of surviving Achaemenid art. The outside wall of the staircases were faced with beautiful bas-reliefs depicting various aspects of the empire. These were probably not completed until the time of Xerxes, and the inscriptions refer to him rather than his father. However, it's very likely that these were planned or even started by Darius. The eastern stairs exit from the east side of the Apadana Terrace, 
but run along the retaining wall north to south, with steps leading down at either end. The northern third or so of the relief depicts a procession of courtiers. A series of noble dignitaries are depicted in three lines, with some turned to face each other as if in conversation while waiting. They are dressed alternately as Medes and Persians, with slightly different outfits to identify the two leading ethnic groups of the empire. As the stone procession approaches the center of the wall, the standing courtiers are replaced by nobles in formal robes mounted on horses, and then two chariots at the head of the parade. Today, that procession leads right to a row of eight soldiers, both Persians and Medes, with two groups of four facing one another. These are probably meant to be the king's elite immortals. However, this was added at some unknown point in the future of our narrative. The original relief depicted the king and the crown prince surrounded by a few immortals as they receive a noble dignitary. The dignitary himself is depicted in the early or late stages of bowing before the king. At some unknown point, the original center relief was damaged and moved to the treasury building, only to be replaced by a more generic lineup of immortals. At the far end of the northern procession, there are also a few depictions of a lion attacking a bull. This is a scene that is played out across the art of many Near Eastern cultures from millennia before the Persians, and seems to be iconography that they adapted from Assyrian and Elamite examples. The exact message, if it was even remembered by the Achaemenid period, is lost to us. Some have speculated that it represents some kind of cycle of eternity, with the bull looking back on its attacker. In reality, the symbolism is unknown, and quite frankly, would probably be lost on me anyway. The southern wall returns to three lines in procession leading up to the king. This time, it isn't noble courtiers, but a variety of tribute bearers from all over the empire. Every major provincial or ethnic group is depicted in their own stereotypical style, bringing a product that represents their homeland to the king. It would be extremely tedious work to go through all of them, and they're sort of jumbled together with no real geographic rhyme or reason, but I'll share some of the highlights. The Medes lead their procession, dressed for cavalry action and bearing a variety of noble gifts, including pitchers, bowls, jewelry, clothes, and even an Akhenakes dagger, usually a symbol of royal favor rather than tribute. The Elamites are right behind them, mostly carrying weapons, but also a lioness and her two cubs as gifts symbolic of royal authority. The Parthians and Aryans bring camels. The Babylonians bring bowls and noble clothing, almost in contrast with the inordinate size of their actual tribute. The Lydians, meanwhile, bring a chariot drawn by stallions and richly decorated metalworks. The damaged image of an Egyptian tribute bearer is leading a hippopotamus. Greeks are dressed identical to the Lydians, but lack coned hats of the Anatolian tribes and bring gifts of fabric, probably meant to be wool. Indians are depicted both leading a donkey and carrying baskets of gold over their shoulders. And finally, the Nubians bring up the rear with a bull, an elephant tusk, and bizarrely enough, an okapi. And of course, that's just a sampling. There are many regions that I didn't point out because their gifts are just kind of germane objects of daily life. The northern staircase, where I had our tour enter the Apadana, is less detailed, though debate goes back and forth over which one was first, with the consensus leading towards the eastern stairs as the originals. 
The reliefs on the northern stairs at least attempt to be a mirror image, with only some minor changes. Cones held by the Greeks in the original are replaced with balls to signify wool instead, and the central relief of the king and his court is still intact on this side. Though, like many of these reliefs, it has actually been relocated to various museums, specifically the Archaeological Museum of Tehran in this case. Who exactly is depicted in the central reliefs is up for debate. The king is seated on the throne, and the crown prince is directly behind him. Generally, this is thought to be an original from Darius's reign, and thus depicts Darius and Xerxes. However, if it really was constructed under Xerxes, then there's a possibility that it is meant to be Xerxes and his son Artaxerxes I. If we go with the more common understanding that the king is meant to be Darius, then the noble bowing in front of him is possibly Pharnaces, who was the chief economic official and treasurer at Persepolis under Darius. He was also a relative of the king, though exactly what the connection was is unclear. If the king in the picture is Xerxes, then it might be Pharnaces' successor, a man called Aspathenes. Regardless of who this official is supposed to be, I should probably point out that the official bowing on the northern staircase is also the logo for the show. If you look at the History of Persia thumbnail, that Persian figure with his hand to his mouth is the one bowing in this relief. If we exit the Apadana platform by the east stairs, the only other building completed would have been on the far side of the terrace in the southeast corner, but to get there, we'd have to walk past a smaller work in progress. This was the residential palace intended for Darius. Unfortunately for a king who loved new palaces, it wasn't completed in his lifetime, and he may never have even stayed there. Instead, he would have had to live in Cyrus's palace at Pasargadai while in Parsa. Called the Tassara, or the Winter Palace, this was located on the southern side of the Apadana Terrace. It was smaller than the residential palace at Susa, and within a generation it was finished, but dwarfed by the residential complex built by Xerxes. It seems to have survived the destruction of the city mostly intact, though. All of the major stone components are still standing. This includes doorways, support columns, and sections of wall decorated with reliefs. The decorations largely depict court life. The king is attended by servants in some, while others show further possessions of tribute bearers and noble supplicants. Other reliefs show glorious hunting scenes with a warrior, probably the king, slaying real and mythical creatures, including lions and winged bulls. In its heyday, every inch of this palace must have been richly decorated, with paint and gilding, rugs, tapestries, or inscriptions. Even the window frames and the doorknobs were inscribed with messages like, quote, a stone window frame from the house of Darius, the king, and a doorknob of precious stone, made in the palace of King Darius. So, not the most creative inscriptions, but it was probably much more important to see cuneiform decorating everything, and I can't imagine that too many people stopped to read the doorknobs anyway. Though my wife pointed out that maybe this was a theft deterrent, and people kept stealing Darius's door handles. So finally, the last structure for us to visit at Darius's Persepolis was the treasury. This was a massive storehouse in the southeast corner. In the future, it would be connected to the palace of Xerxes. 
but under Darius, it was freestanding. Most hypothetical descriptions I can find of this building try to paint it as a treasure hoard to make Smaug blush. This was where all of the precious gifts given to the king, as well as most of the regional tribute collected from the southeastern provinces, would be brought and stored. Alexander of Macedon reputedly found thousands of pounds of dyed purple fabric from Phoenicia, just waiting to be cut and given out as royal gifts. It wasn't just left there to gather dust, either. There were actually people employed by the treasury and the royal appointed officers there to maintain and polish all of the gold and silver. So we should probably imagine that the king might visit or send visitors occasionally, if only to show off. The treasury has another copy of the tribute bearer reliefs from the Apadana staircases, which seems appropriate for the place where all that tribute was actually stored. The Persepolis treasury was also home to unique and interesting loot, prizes, and souvenirs collected during Persia's many conquests. Most notably, this included a white marble statue of Penelope, wife of Odysseus, looted from Greece in the upcoming wars there. The Persepolis treasury must also have been home to some more mundane things, like all of the produce, foodstuffs, and supplies collected as tribute from most of the empire. It would also have housed the offices of administrators like Pharnakes or Aspathenes, who coordinated how those supplies were paid out to laborers or delivered to the various royal estates. This was not limited to Persepolis itself. The Persepolis treasury seems to have been a hub of supplies and economic orchestrations for much of the central empire. We know this from perhaps the most important artifacts found at Persepolis, and a subject that will now become the most important primary sources for the show when I talk about anything inside the Empire. These are, of course, the Persepolis Archive Tablets. These come in two sets. The Persepolis Treasury Tablets date from about 506 to 497 BCE, and were found in the ruins of the treasury itself. That accounts for only 139 tablets of the tens of thousands of tablets and fragments recovered from the Persian city. The rest are known as the Persepolis Fortification Tablets. These account for records of receipts, transfers, storage, and taxation of food, livestock, produce, and other goods taken and redistributed between temples, royals, nobles, administrators, workers, farms, and travelers, basically every aspect of finance and life in the empire. Many of them seem to have been stored in an archive within the complex's defensive walls, hence the fortification tablets. But those walls were held up by a wooden frame, which collapsed and buried the archive when the Macedonians destroyed the city. The insights archaeologists and historians have gathered from these tablets are almost incalculable. They shed light on the social structure, labor organization, construction projects, economic activities, military matters, and important individuals unknown in the Greek accounts. They are key to understanding the culture and lifestyle of the Persian heartland and form the bedrock of any discussion for internal Persian affairs. It's much more important than I could possibly get into now but they have already become a recurring feature of my cultural discussions and will remain that way for a long time. Despite that great importance, this is also the end of the palace tour. 
That's the end of the structures that we can date to the reign of Darius, and it's time to move on with the show. Even though the Persepolis archives are now in our repertoire of sources, the next few episodes will actually shift hard back to the Greek stuff as we return to the narrative. For the last five episodes, I've been talking about the Persian Empire around the ballpark of 500 BCE. Now it's time to move on and enter a new century, and the year 499 BCE. There are storms on the western horizon, and a new wave of rebellion is about to sweep over the Anatolian coast, so we'll be launching right into the Ionian Revolt. And while the tide isn't fully turning against the Persians just yet, the winning streak is about to come to an end. Now, before I mix my episodes any further, I think it's time to call it a day and say I'll see you all in two weeks. Until then, thank you all so much for listening. If you want to find more information about the show, about me, or ways to get in touch, just go to historyofpersiapodcast.com, where you can find things like my bibliography, the support page to figure out how to support the show in ways other than Patreon, the Achaemenid family tree up to the children of Darius, and a few other details. Like I mentioned before, you can find me on social media, which is also the best way that you can help the show grow. Tell your friends, share, like, repost, whatever you want to do, even talk to people in real life. I absolutely love and can't wait for the show to grow. It's my favorite way to see support. That said, reviews don't hurt either. So if you use iTunes or Facebook or Stitcher, please leave a review and tell me how you're liking the podcast so far. Until next time, thank you all so much for listening to The History of Persia. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts 
to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.